But when people start you know, exercising their rights without government permission, and enough people do that, it doesn't really, the market is stronger than government. And we can see this play out in practice just in these examples. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 27. Yo, welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food's on you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. A few notes. First, head on over to my podcasts page, uh, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and there you'll find all of my social media buttons, and you can join my Eating Liberty Facebook group or follow me on Twitter or Instagram. You can also support me with Patreon. I would much appreciate anything that you can support, any pennies you can throw my way, so to speak. Uh, please do find, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. The more reviews the show gets, the higher it moves up in the ranks. And the higher it moves up in the ranks means the more people can get cooking. Lastly, please do share the shows on social media. Since the last presidential election, we've heard much about abolishing the Electoral College. Well... There's a whole host of reasons to avoid doing just that, including the vastly disproportional number of people living in Los Angeles and New York. The founders created the Electoral College for a reason, and the reason was, in part, so that two cities don't decide the fate for the entire nation. To learn more about the Constitution and be equipped to deal with the dolts, as the election cycle revs up, subscribe to Tom Woods Liberty Classroom through my link, culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. Bite back against the failed education from the state. When you subscribe, look for the U.S. Constitutional History class by Kevin Gutzman and Brian McClanahan. Learn constitutional history in short lectures on your commute or at the gym culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. My guest today is Michael Bolden. I'm going to read the first few lines of the SPLC entry for Michael as an introduction. Quote, Michael Bolden is the founder and executive director of the Tenth Amendment Center, TAC, an organization that favors nullification, quote-unquote, of federal laws it considers unconstitutional. Founded in 2007, the TAC is based on an expansive reading of the Tenth Amendment, which says that those, quote, powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people, end quote. Bolden describes the TAC, which offers model bills and resolutions on its website, as, quote, a nonpartisan think tank that supports the principles of strictly limited constitutional government, end quote. Bolden evidently runs the organization from his home, which also houses Web Stores LLC, where he is listed as manager. As a practical matter, however, the TAC is on the political far right, 
proposing a whole array of federal laws and regulations. It has gained wide support among hardline libertarians and neo-confederates who are still angry at the powers the federal government accumulated after the Civil War that allowed it, among other things, to act against segregation, discrimination, and other social ills. Parenthesis, in the 1950s, several states tried unsuccessfully to resist desegregation by nullifying federal laws. The courts have consistently rejected nullification as unconstitutional, end quote. And end introduction. I will tell you that in my conversation with Michael previously, <laughs> the Soviet Poverty Life Center, hat tip to Tom DiLorenzo, is a bit of a badge of honor. So, <laughs> with that, let's welcome Michael. Good morning, Michael. Awesome. Really glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. So before we get into this too much, in case somebody doesn't know, tell us about the 10th Amendment Center. Well, we just believe in uh, applying this whole kind of what seems to be outdated view of the Constitution that the federal government should have almost no power. There's about 30 to 35 things that have been delegated to the federal government. And I would say if you were to look at anything that the federal government had done in the last ah, 50, 100 years, we'll say, and everything without even reading it, researching anything, you automatically said it's unconstitutional. You're going to be right probably nine out of 10 times, maybe 95 out of 100. And that's a really good win weight. So you don't even win rate. You don't even have to pay attention to what they're doing. And you know that almost everything they're doing is unconstitutional. And we, we like this mentality because our goal is individual liberty. And the closer to the individual that the most important and actually all decisions are made, the greater chance you're going to have of actually seeing individual liberty in practice. All right. Well, we're going to get to the part of the individual in a minute, but let's, we're going to talk since this is the culinary libertarian show, we're going to focus on the kind of the a mix of the both, the culinary part, or at least the food part. So let's talk a little bit about food sovereignty and what you think food sovereignty means. <laughs> well, it really gets down. I'm going to go right back to the individual because uh, sovereignty means in some way, maybe self-ownership, final decision. And in, in, in this whole system that we have, no government is sovereign. It's individuals that have their own sovereignty. So if you own yourself, you should be able to make the decision of what you want to what do you want to put in your own body? Uh, I guess that's the short version. And whether that's a, a food product or a health supplement or whatever it may be, the federal government has been getting in the way. And so does state and local governments, too. But I see the federal government as the most damaging one. It is the largest government in the history of the globe. So it is easy sometimes to overlook some of the state and local problems. But I also see I kind of see this connect the dot game where most of the bad things done on a state or a local level are oftentimes funded and pushed by Washington, D.C. So uh, I, I start at striking the root, starting with Washington and then dealing with a state or a local level and then going all the way down to the individual. Again, the goal is people should be able to make their own choice about food in this context 
and not have any government interference whatsoever. It's a, just a, a free market choice. If someone wants to sell you a product and you want to consume it, that should be between you and the business or the other person that you're conducting business with. Okay. And that makes sense. So I'm going to give a little bit of a pushback and I have a specific example to use. Oh, I don't do well with pushback. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so a fair few people are going to say that we need the FDA. We need the USDA because they have at least the mechanisms to check for pathogens. I certainly can't do that. I don't know anybody who has the machines to wouldn't even know an E. coli if you saw it. So I need somebody who has at least the research tool and the knowledge to identify when something is unhealthy. And so we need these people here. So the specific example was just the other day, Kerrygold Butter Company mm -hmm. is being put into the crosshairs because it turns out maybe the cows which provide the milk, which makes the butter and the cheese are not 100% grass fed as is maybe indicated by the label. So now the FDA is stepping in. How can, on the individual level, how that's probably a, a small fight, but how does the individual deal with either misinformation or, more importantly, actually being made ill by eating a product from a company? I mean, this is, it's already happened. I'm sick. Now what do I do? How do we skirt having the FDA and the USDA and still make sure that I have good faith that the choice I make for my food is going to make me well and not sick. That might be a little over my head as far as like how people put this into practice. Uh, but the deeper philosophical question I guess I have is that, well, hey, people are getting sick sometimes from eating food right now under a regime of the FDA and USDA. So they are not making everything 100% healthy all the time. And of course, uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like the who will build the roads question that libertarians and ancaps often ask each other in, in jest. But just because government has been doing something for so long and they've blocked out the market does not mean that there is not a market solution. I don't know what that market solution is. I do know that when I look for organic labeling on my own products in my own shopping, I don't necessarily just stop and make a purchase because I see USDA organic because my instinct is to not trust the USDA. I don't necessarily believe that they have not worked with corporate partners to lower the standards for, for what organic is. I can't prove that. That's my gut instinct. But when I see QAI, Quality Assurance International, I believe it's up by you. They're based up by you in Oregon, maybe Washington State. When I see that, that third party, which is an independent company, I tend to lean towards that. So if it has both USDA and that, then I'll be like, okay, I'll take that one over the one that only has the government label on it. And that's just my personal instinct. And I may not even be uh, onto something there other than you shouldn't trust government. Well, I think not trusting government is probably a good thing to be onto. Um, Vis-a-vis -vis the third-party labeling in, I, I did a lot of research and interviewed someone in the olive oil uh, industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, this particular company no longer affiliates themselves with the, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong, but there is a union of um, olive growers in California and they 
abide by their own rules to make sure that the product they're selling is organic and meets some pretty high quality criteria, which they have set. So we, I, I love this. In, just, this is this is our group, our rules. They have left the group, but they still. I, I don't. I don't. I'm getting confused. But the point is that on the back of the bottle of particular California olive oils is this little logo from this union of olive growers. And I have faith that they are making sure that the quality of the oil that they represent or represents them is up to scratch. And I trust that far more than I trust whatever is on the back of those bottles because it ain't what it says it is. So, you know, that's really interesting. It makes me think about domestic as far as uh, USA uh, hemp. So if you were to get hemp seeds over the last four or five years, there was no way to get an organic label on it because hemp has been illegal for decades to grow. Now, back in 2014, Barack Obama signed the Farm Bill into law that authorized hemp growing or gave permission for states and individuals to grow hemp, but only under the purview of a university research program. But it ended up being about 17 states before they signed this current farm bill into law that actually legalized it, took it, decriminalized hemp on a federal level. But there were 17 states that were doing it for commercial purposes anyways. But because it was illegal on the federal level, you couldn't get that USDA organic. So if you wanted organic hemp, you'd still have to import it from Manitoba, for example, somewhere in Canada. Uh, but then that gets to the whole idea of knowing your producer. Uh, now, I don't necessarily know them, but when you see a, a local Colorado hemp producer that's been producing hemp since before even the state authorized it, and they say, you know, we use organic farming methods, I tend to be more trusting of that, just like you. I tend to trust the, the local producer because if they're lying and someone finds out eventually, they're going to be out of business. When the government lies or they fail, we know that they're never going to be out of business. Well, if the government lies, they just need more money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. More taxation. All right, so let's let's step away a little bit from the big behemoth, the Leviathan, and let's get down to at least to the state level uh, and one particular individual in one particular state. Senator Richard Briggs in Tennessee has advanced a bill to end what's the so-called cow share program, mm -hmm. which um, if you're not familiar with that, 10 people can own a cow and all 10 people can participate in consuming the milk and milk products. And that cow doesn't have to have the milk pasteurized. So he wants to end the cow share program. So if you're the farmer, you can drink the milk from your cow raw or whatever you want to do to it the other nine people cannot. And of course, he's going to go and cite all of these cases where someone got sick by drinking raw milk and all these horrible things happened by drinking raw milk. And just as you mentioned, there are plenty of people getting sick on inspected food, which may have been mishandled. The food may be fine. It might be the people mishandling the food, and we don't really have any way to know those things. But it's certainly an encroachment on the welfare of the nine people who, in, in this example, who can't participate in drinking the raw milk, eating the raw yogurt, eating the raw cheese. And this looks like a lot of overreach. So raw milk is actually one of the kind of uh, putting things into practice activist things that we work on quite a bit here. 
for example, just in my own personal life, I can walk down the street two blocks down to the local market here, here where I live in downtown Los Angeles, and pick up raw milk, raw kefir, whatever, just on the same shelf as there is uh, a pasteurized milk. Now, I've learned in my own life, I have a dairy allergy, or so I thought. Uh, my entire childhood, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I was always getting fed cheese and dairy, and it really makes me pretty ill. I just can't do it. But someone told me a few years ago, oh, try the unpasteurized. It's it's likely that the pasteurization is killing some bacteria in there, some helpful bacteria for your system. So when I have raw kefir, I can have it four or five days in a row and have zero problems with it. So I don't know scientifically if that's the case, but for whatever reason, I have no issues with raw products versus the pasteurized ones. So this is a good example of how the FDA, now the FDA takes the position that raw milk should never be consumed ever. They currently ban all raw dairy products from interstate commerce, from traveling across state lines. Lines. But beyond that, they also take the position, and this was, uh, I'm trying to think if it was maybe 2011 or so, they actually uh, put out a statement in, uh, in part of a lawsuit that they said it's within HHS's authority to institute an intrastate ban. They take the position... The federal government takes the position that they can ban raw dairy products that are produced in your state, produced in your backyard, consumed in your own home, just like they've done with, with marijuana. The Gonzalez versus Rach case of 2005, the Supreme Court held, led, led of course, by that great conservative guy Scalia. They took the position that if you grew six plants in your backyard, you never bought or sold them, you consume them at home. This was somehow interstate commerce and the feds could come in and stomp those out with armed agents. And of course, that's the cannabis plant. So they take the same kind of view on raw dairy products. Now, they haven't tried to institute that ban because I believe it's because so many states are taking steps to legalize it anyways. If they try to ban something that everyone is already allowing, it's going to be almost impossible to pull that off. Now, a herd share is a small step forward. In some states, what they've actually done is they've legalized raw dairy products for pet consumption. And so therefore, it can be sold as long as it says not for human consumption. But everybody who wants to consume it, they realize, OK, I'm just going to get this pet raw milk and I'm just going to use it because there's no other way to pull it off. Now, in a place like California, there is no restriction. I can just go to the local store. Whole Foods doesn't carry it because they're concerned about the interstate commerce aspect of it. But local markets, I find it all over the place. A herd share is a step forward from a total prohibition and removing that and authorizing retail sales at the location, like at farmer's market would be the next step. And then at regular grocery stores and things is the follow-up full zero restriction on it. Now there's always pushback on this type of thing, but there's a lot of legislation moving things forward along these lines. There's a bill in North Carolina that would allow for retail sales, decriminalize raw milk, same in Vermont, another piece of legislation that's being considered for this year to decriminalize raw milk. It's insane to think that, that dairy coming out of cow is criminalized. Uh, but the more that people do this, the more freedom I think that we're going to have in the long run. Well, I, I think that that's probably true. And it has not been in California a victory without a fight. Um, I don't... No, certainly not. And it never is. It never is. Government doesn't ever just give up its place. But like another example here in Los Angeles that I think is a good one is that the city council recently 
and I'm not sure the exact number, but they recently told 20,000 street food vendors that it was legal to do to, to do street food vending. There's been a long battle here, uh, primarily with uh, an illegal immigrant population uh, that uh, has been uh, selling food on the street, outside nightclubs, all over the place. And that's not always that, but I think that's where a lot of the complaints come in from, I think, certain quarters. But people are just doing it without a license. And they've been doing it for so long that it's part of the culture, the street food, food culture here in L.A., and the city has been trying to shut these people down. And every time they do it, there's such a huge pushback from the community that they look like monsters. And so people keep doing it anyways. And then finally, the city council said, well, you can do it. But I think that's absurd because the city council said to these whatever, 20, 30,000 street food vendors that have been doing it without a license, you know, that thing that you've been doing all along, now you can do it. And I think that is the example uh, where that is always a struggle. But when people start it, you know, exercising their rights without government permission. And enough people do that. It doesn't really, the market is stronger than government. And we can see this play out in practice just in these examples. Yes, we can and we have, and, but the government still, <laughs> they've got bigger guns. David Gumpert wrote a book a few years ago called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Food Rights. Oh, cool. And made uh, a couple of interesting uh, examples are used a couple of specific cases, and one of them was in Los Angeles with a, a couple of fellows who were completely raw. I mean, everything, chicken, beef, didn't cook anything. And the FDA went after them hard a couple of times, finally, finally nailed them, and it's sort of a compelling story to read. Mm -hmm. um, he also illustrated some of the farmers, some of the Amish farmers in Pennsylvania and out east who were doing herd shares. And all they're doing, all these Amish farmers are doing is selling milk. And of course, you know, they, now this, it, it's kind of horrifying to read about a, an, any farm, but I suppose somehow the emotionality of the Amish farmer makes us more outraged that the armed thugs show up and, and handcuff the, the farmers. But there was in this book a story about a judge in Wisconsin who said that you, Joe Citizen, growing food in your backyard, do not have the right to eat the food of your labor. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, this is completely backwards. If if we're letting, well, no one's letting, but if 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 judges and those who decide the law are determining that the products of the fruit of our labor are trafe to us, well, we got a big problem. Yeah. Well, certainly. But I think the message then is don't rely on government to tell you it's OK to do what you believe is OK for you. Now, certainly that comes with a warning label, a third party warning label <laughs> that it's not necessarily always safe to resist the government, but we know that government isn't going to freely say, okay, what we've been trying to control you on, you can just do. I think the example of the Los Angeles food carts is an excellent one. Now out east with the raw milk issue, there was a group called the Raw Milk Raiders. What they were doing, they lived in New Jersey where it was illegal. And what they would do is they would drive to Pennsylvania, 
purchase some raw milk, drive across the state line, go to the federal courthouse in whatever their local community it was, drink the raw milk with large signs that says, I drink raw milk, arrest me. That's the same type of a mentality that, look, sooner or later, you have to defy some of these laws and regulations. Now, that doesn't mean if you go it alone, you probably will run into some problems if you make some noise about it. But when you have large enough numbers, it is very difficult for them to enforce their laws. Now, Angel Rach, the lady that I mentioned or I referred to in that Gonzalez versus Rach case, the Supreme Court 2005 case that said the federal government was supreme over state or local laws on marijuana. In the run up to that case, she specifically said, you know, if I lose this, this was a woman with a kind of a golf ball size uh, tumor in her brain and she was treating treating it with cannabis. And she said. Uh, you know, if I lose this case, I will probably go to Canada. But somewhere along the line, she changed her mind because after she lost the case, and I'm not sure if it was on the steps of the courthouse or if she just did a public statement later, but she said, look, the Supreme Court made this decision, but I'm going to continue treating myself the way I want to treat myself. Now, some people may look at cannabis as a recreational product. Some people may look at it as a, a medicinal product, and some people may juice it and use it as a food product. But one way or the other, sooner or later, and this is still happening today because the Supreme Court has never changed their mind, but yet there are millions of people using this plant in the way that they see best for them without permission from Washington, D.C. Now, the next step, of course, is to get the state government out of the way, but that might be out of my pay grade. Let's step for one second. We're going to go really, really big. Okay. <laughs> well, as I'm going to bring it back home, but there's some interesting, um, uh, interesting food concerns worldwide. And I just stumbled upon a food writer. Uh, I hope I say his name right. Balin Linekin, who writes uh, pretty often for reason and maybe other publications, uh, a 2018 piece called The State of Food Freedom Around the Globe, and cites a couple of good ones, but the worst offense was in Hungary, where the anti-immigrant government is threatening to imprison people for feeding refugees. Mm, you know, I had a friend in, or I still have a friend who uh, has worked in the restaurant industry in San Francisco for many years, and she organized some co-workers and some colleagues from other restaurants to actually uh, take leftover food that they would throw away and feed it to the large homeless population in the Tenderloin. And she was doing that for a while, but then government uh, agents told her to stop. It was illegal to take food that was going to be thrown away that was probably, I mean, you and I, we know it's still good. Uh, and and to give it to someone who had zero food and allow them the choice, but it only could come through government approved things. Of course, government like is it wants to be seen like a religion. It's like they're the God that's going to determine what's right and wrong, who's going to be saved and who's going to die. So unfortunately, we're going to keep running into those things as long as people continue to comply. I think that if we're going to have an overarching message of what I'm saying is as long as people comply in such large numbers and believe that the government is the right place to have all these decisions made, then I think we're going to continue to have those problems. You know, Harry Brown years ago, the great uh, passed away libertarian writer, he used to talk about a lot about how the FDA actually kills. And I don't have the statistics off the off the top of my head, but I remember listening to his show years ago, his radio show, uh, talking about he would cite all these times where uh, the FDA held something 
from the market and then people would die from it. I mean, think about someone like me and now I'm not going to die from drinking pasteurized milk, but think of someone who grew up in America's dairy land that didn't actually have access to milk in its whole form because there are some bacteria killed in the process. And then I got ill from it. And that's because the system uh, between government at the federal, state and local level all told me that the, this wasn't allowed. That's 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 the problem that we're fighting. And that's one of the things that as libertarians, we're trying to just get that message out. Uh, your friend in the Tenderloin reminds me of the group in Fort Lauderdale, a food, not bombs. Yeah, yeah. And there was that man who repeatedly was arrested for feeding the homeless. Yeah. And we just, at some point, and probably pretty quickly, you say, wow, there's, there's a humanitarian service being provided. We're feeding humans, yet somehow the state's going to intervene. And it just is, it's a head scratcher and a puzzle almost immediately. You know, and I always I focus most of my work because I run an organization called the Tenth Amendment Center. So if most of my work is directed towards dealing with Washington, D.C., but, you know, and I mentioned at the beginning, you know, you also have to and, I'm, you know, and again, I keep saying it's a, maybe a little above my pay grade, probably because I haven't looked into it enough. But there are efforts to actually uh, deal with state control over food as well. So in uh, Maine, for example, I think there's like 40 or 45 local communities that have that have adopted these what they're calling local food and community self-governance ordinances. They're passing all over the place, basically saying if it's local food distribution and production, they're going to be opting out of state level food regulations and controls. And it's just going to be up to the producer and the consumer to determine what's safe and how they're going to do this. Now, the state is the one that's implementing the federal regulation. So I think it all, again, connects. But the more that you do this, the more that people learn from practice that like, whoa, okay, so you're another one of these towns that uh, they're not inspecting the meat, but you know, all these people are buying it and everyone's alive. I think just by learning and watching, people learn that maybe there's a different way forward. And so it's like almost four dozen uh, communities, small in Maine, that are taking this type of approach as well. Well, and that's something that uh, in Gumpert's book, which I will put a link for the book on today's show notes page, show notes page which will be with, ugh, tongue-tied, which will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 27. There, there are more states than just Maine that are doing local level rules and regulations. And uh, he does make the, uh, a, a couple of cases in the book where really nobody knows the animal better than the farmer. And the yeah. farmer is certainly going to know if an animal is unfit for, for consumption. Um, and so trusting the farmer or the, or the grower or the humans connected to the food at its most basic level is certainly much more uh, a, a in line with wholesome thinking than some suit driving a desk in some far-off city in some far-off building. Mind you, a lot of those far-off people and far-off suits and far-off buildings have political goals in 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 mind when they're doing this type of thing. So if you remember years ago when there was the mad cow scare, there was a, a small producer of beef in Nebraska. I wish I remembered the name. I should have looked this up before chatting with you today. But what they decided to start doing, because so many people were concerned about eating beef, they were scared. 
they started testing all of their cows. And I forget the number. I think the the government regulation or the industry standard was one out of a, a hundred or one out of 10 or one out of a thousand, whatever the number was. So some of the larger producers went to the federal government and said, hey, they're not following the standard. They're supposed to be testing one out of 10, we'll say. And they're testing everyone and said, so the feds came in and said, you got to you got to basically lower your standards. So this is there's a political connection that sometimes happened that happens behind the scenes that we don't know why they might want it to be not as good. For example, they may not have our best. Uh, best intentions uh, at heart are best. What would be the, what's the phrase on that? Um, we'll think about that. And get- best interest, our best interest at heart. Yeah, they may be interested in what the lobbyist is interested in. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm a capitalist pig, so I understand wanting to maximize profits, but using the force of government to make your competition who is advanced. Now, that competition was actually selling their product more expensively. It would cost more. And they were very upfront. Look, we're testing everything. We don't normally do this. It's going to cost more. And they still went in and got some pressure to, to change this whole process because it was a certain guideline or regulation that said you only do this number of tests. Uh, I you You might be old enough to remember the... Um, comedian Pat Paulson. I'm a baby. No, I'm a baby. You are a baby. Well, uh, uh, Pat Paulson used to run for president uh, when he was on Laughing, and his slogan was, "I've upped my standards, up yours." Ah, that's awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. All right. So you did mention that the Tenth Amendment Center's main focus is federal. Yes. So the, I'm assuming that the chief aim is to get uh, information about the magnitude of unconstitutional laws and regulations off of the backs of Americans. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting, and you did bring it up, was the intra and interstate commerce thing. Yes. Uh, so we'll go back to Balin's uh, information. I was reading some of his works. And the Wholesale Meat Act of 1967 gives this unelected body more power over food and transport than Congress has. That sounds like an issue. Oh, yeah. Well, it all is. First of all, the FDA shouldn't exist. The USDA shouldn't exist. That's that's basically all these government uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., all these regulations shouldn't exist. And the decision should be made on a state, local or individual as people of each state determine. That's how I view it. So certainly the Wholesome Meat Act, was it 67 or 68? I have my information about 67, but I'm counting on it being right. OK, well, <laughs> we'll go with that because this is someone who's probably probably more of an expert on me than on this than I am. But certainly this is a situation which empowers the federal government to do basically what I was talking about, telling a producer who might want to up their standards that they're not authorized to do so. Now, this is totally unrelated. But in a way, it isn't. There are some states that don't like the the uh, potentially new what they consider bad environment regu- environmental regulations coming from Washington D.C. today. Well, so they're saying they will consider keeping whatever standard that they want to keep, no matter what the federal government sh- is doing. Now. They should take this approach on virtually everything. If they want to have a standard on beef, on dairy, on food, whatever it may be, or have no standards at all and do kind of a local or local situation where local producers are dealing with it like is happening in Maine, 
or have none just between the individual and the producer. Maybe that's the way to go, but it's going to be different in different places. I think we have to recognize that there are a ton of socialists and statists that are all around us, and there's no way to enforce liberty on everybody. So we have to lead by example. We're not going to be able to tell California to have no food regulations anymore or just leave it to local or third-party producers. That's very unlikely. But if you can lead by example and do this on a community level, then maybe the next community will learn and then the next community and then it'll expand. Maybe at some point we're going to look back in a few years and say, remember back when Maine just had 45 of these towns that were doing this? Now it's the whole state. And then when Maine does it, then it spills over to the next. And we saw this exact same thing play out on the cannabis issue. Here in California back in 1996, the voters approved Proposition 215, which authorized the use of cannabis for supposedly limited medical purposes, even though every branch of the federal government said they couldn't do it, and then they eventually lost on it in the Supreme Court. But from one state, people learned that the world didn't come to an end. Terrorists didn't come and kill us all because there was weed. And the same thing can happen on dairy, on meat, on anything else. I think Walter Block, uh, guessing, I mean, I don't know that he wrote about this specifically, but he's written a lot about how would... Hasn't Block written about everything? <laughs> I would think so. Um, how, how would such a system work? And so what I know of his writing is the first answer is insurance companies. So the, the dairy producers have an insurance company in case in case somebody gets sick from something. I mean, we know that if you in, if you consume something into your body, there's a risk that there's a pathogen. So uh, I can imagine that in restaurants, the instead of having the health inspectors going around, which, by the way, having worked in the restaurant business, they come very infrequently and they have a long list of restaurants to get to. So really, it's pretty much just you're in the way at the end of my day. So we're going to yeah, fine, fine, fine. No glaring, giant, horrible offenses. I got to get going. Um, so if insurance companies then can, can they have the time and the inclination and the incentive to help whatever the business is comply with what are industry established rules. So if you're a restaurant, it's in your best interest not to make your customers sick because you want them to come back and spend more money. And there's is just a, a genius simplicity to this. It's like, wow, I, if you don't think about it, I don't think you'd ever come up with it. But I heard Walter talk about it. So dang, that's pretty smart. Yeah. And then I just always go back to striking the root. You mentioned the Wholesome Meat Act, which tells that all local producers have to go to you know, basically a federally inspected slaughterhouse. And you understand how these inspections <laughs> or a state slaughter, inspected slaughterhouse that's doing the enforcement for the for the feds but there's also the food safety modernization act which is basically the feds creating this network of state run food inspection programs but Again, I don't trust Washington, D.C. to have our best interests at heart. I don't think they're going to necessarily do a good job. Maybe they do. I don't know. I used to listen to uh, Free Talk Live pretty regularly, and Mark, oh, the co-host, Mark Edge, he would often talk about, you know, a lot of times the government could be really good at buying a Honda. If you want to tell the government to go buy a car, they can buy a Honda Accord. 
They might spend $100,000 on it, but they can succeed and do it. So it's possible, maybe, that the federal government could do good meat inspection. But then again, you're not even considering the cost and you're not creating a, a system, an environment of competition. And competition is going to give us better quality and lower cost on this. And it could lower the, lower the cost and improve the quality of our food supply just by introducing some competition in this. Well, yes, competition would work. And I was just thinking... <laughs> Of all of the places where these just giant recalls of meats, mm -hmm. ha where they're happening is, ta-da, the government inspected facilities. Yeah, and I think after that pass, so in the, back in the 60s, I think there was, and I'm just off the top of my head, the number of slaughterhouses around the country was somewhere between 10 and 15,000. And then after it was passed, it kept dipping down and down until I think these days it's around 3,000. So it's cut down maybe by a quarter. So you're having less competition in the producers as well as the federal government sweeps in and takes control of, of the kind of the process. Uh, there is a chicken ranch called Polyface Farms owned by Joel Salatin. Oh, I like Joel. He is awesome. He is awesome. He's no stranger to controversy and no big fan of the FDA, and I'm sure it is mutual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I first learned of him in Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and what was particularly interesting is when Joel goes to butcher chickens, it's, it's a concrete slab, stainless steel tables, and a roof. And Joel's argument is there is no better disinfectant on the planet than fresh air and sunshine. And if you can find it, bring it to me. Now, he does raise cows and was pretty much, I think, you know, forced by government power to send the cows to one of these approved facilities. But as chickens go... That's probably still how he does it, and they were not able to. The feds were not able to find any flaw in his system because nobody got sick. He doesn't ship them. You want them? Go drive and go get it. So there's there there is pushback. There are people who are using reason and a firm resolve to make inroads. It's just it's just as you know Higgs calls it this giant leviathan. Well. There's no better example of where the pushback has worked than on cannabis, on any issue. I mean, even if we're going broader than food, and I know obviously <laughs> the, the title of the show and the podcast, that's what we're talking about here. But cannabis has showed us how to get it done. Literally do it and then wait for the government to follow up because people were buying, selling, growing, consuming cannabis even before voters in California in 1996 passed a law to legalize cannabis for medical purposes. People were using it first. And then government as a lagging indicator wants to look like it's the good guy. And I said in a video a few years ago that basically there are so many people in so many states using cannabis, even though the feds say they can't at every level, that sooner or later, the federal government was going to have to back off and decriminalize just to save face. And we're, I think we're very close to being, to seeing that happen in our lifetime. Now, the same thing could happen and we're starting to see it go in that direction on raw milk. Will the FDA ever take the position that the HHS doesn't have the authority to do intrastate ban? I don't know. They'll probably continue to put that out because they like the scare tactics and they like the control. But if all 50 states allow it anyways, it won't matter 
because people won't have to cross state lines to get their products. And there's just not much they're going to be able to do about it. Well, I like the sound of that. And it's certainly a reason to have hope. I got a ton of it. Maybe I get too excited about some of these things. But to me, cannabis has is, is, is been a big winner. It's really a blueprint. We then started seeing a number of years later, the same thing on hemp. It took a little bit longer, industrial hemp. Now, the U.S., is the world's number one importer, has been for many years, the world's number one importer of raw industrial hemp without the THC or very low numbers. And on the uh, world stage, the top two exporters are Canada and China. So when you hear the, the Trump types talk about trade imbalance, you know, point that out. Well, it is positive. The farm bill was a pile of steaming garbage. But the one shining light is that the feds are now going to decriminalize hemp production, which may, means that we're going to see even more of it produced outside of the 17 states that were doing it anyways. They did not legalize CBD, which is the uh, uh, the resin from the flower of the hemp plant. Well, I mean, it's, you can get CBD elsewhere, but that's the most popular place. But I find it in food products here in California all the time. I go to a lo local coffee shop in Little Tokyo in downtown Los Angeles. Angeles, three blocks from my apartment, and I get cold brew coffee infused with 10 milligrams of full spectrum hemp based CBD. And I consume that every single day, even though it is 100% illegal, according to the FDA, to do this unless it's an FDA approved drug. The only one is an isolate called Epidiolex, and even the hemp for the Epidiolex that's been approved is imported from the United Kingdom, even though there's hemp grown all over the country now, Kentucky, Colorado, uh, Vermont, Maine, elsewhere. So it's absurd, this whole kind of centralized power struggle. But we see CBD products all over the place and they're shipping it across state lines. So that's even the next level. I talk about, OK, you don't necessarily need to get raw milk across state lines if it's available everywhere. But I can buy CBD all over the place. But the FDA says it is not legal to include it as a supplement or in food products. But we can buy it. Maybe not on Amazon yet, but you can have it shipped to you whatever state that you're in. Yeah, I've got a couple of affiliate links for that. It's awesome. It's totally illegal, but it, that makes it even more awesome because it shows that we can we can make our own choices. And most people probably don't even know this. In fact, I've even heard from really great libertarians like, oh, you know, CBD must be must be legal on a federal level because they're not stopping it. I can get it shipped to my house. Well, no, that's what makes it more awesome. It still is. And in fact, the 2019 farm bill that legalized or decriminalized hemp specifically had language in it that said this does not affect the FDA's uh, jurisdiction over CBD isolates or whatever, uh, uh, the resin that comes from the flower of the hemp plant and the FDA still has 100% jurisdiction. Then you just look at what the FDA puts out in statement after statement. Nope, it's not approved, not approved, not approved for food, cosmetic, not approved uh, under the F Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. It's not approved for anything, but it's available so many places. It shows the power of the market over the government controllers. All right. So since we did mention, I did mention that this is a culinary show in part. Yes. <laughs> we're going to talk uh, a couple of food questions. And this is in the style I've, I've, uh, I've hybridized a little bit of Nikki P and a little bit from James Lipton. And if you've ever watched Inside the Actors Studio, you know what I'm talking about. I haven't. So this should be fun. All right. So the first question is, of the five flavors, sweet? Salty, bitter, sour, and umami. Which one do you enjoy the most? Umami. 
Okay. What's your favorite food? Sushi. Nice. What's your least favorite food? Um, wow. I don't know of anything. I don't have one. Like, usually I would just go gut instinct. Like, oh, man, I don't like that. That is, uh, no, I don't have one. Uh, seaweed. Straight. Oh, okay. Because I said, wait a minute. You just said sushi. <laughs> well, I like sashimi more than anything. Ah. I don't generally don't get hand rolls or cut rolls. I generally just do uh, straight straight sushi grade fish but uh, and i live right next to a little japanese market that i can go and get the most amazing bluefin tuna salmon for like like the tuna i get for like 13.99 a pound if i were to get sushi grade at like a whole foods it's going to be 25 to 30 dollars a pound so the prices are great the quality is amazing fabulous that's that sounds extraordinary what gets you excited man <laughs> exercising our rights without government permission, obviously encouraging other people to do it, watching it happen. CBD. I have, you know, and it's funny to say CBD. I'm really excited about CBD because I didn't know anything about it. And when I first started in my work, I look at all kinds of legislation and regulations and stuff all the time. And a few years ago, I started seeing, um, because I don't, I didn't know anything about CBD at the time because all this information has been kind of kept from us for so long. And I guess I wasn't hungry enough, pun intended, to actually look for it. But I started seeing these uh, bills passed that allowed for low THC CBD oil to be available on a state level. And I'm like, ah, these people are just doing a cop out. They don't want to legalize weed. They suck. But then as I learn that how useful it is for anti-inflammatory, for anxiety, it's included in food products all the time. As I learn, I become so excited and because it's so ubiquitous, it's so available everywhere. To me, it's incredibly exciting as an as a lesson, as an as an example for how we get things done for liberty. Is that the short version? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Sorry. Oh no, no, no! I, your your enthusiasm is is very enjoyable. Okay, cool. What turned you off? Government. Fair enough. Cops. Cops. What's Oh, yeah. Okay. What sound do you love? Any sound? Pick one. I uh, I like gypsy jazz, if we're talking music, or the grilling of, of, of a nice T-bone steak. Okay. Very good. What sound do you hate? Well, if you've been listening in the background, I have some construction below me lately, and they're building a restaurant, a bow restaurant below me. And I have this really piercing drilling that happens below my feet uh, uh, every now and then throughout the day. And right now, that one kind of makes my skin crawl. Sure. And actually, I did hear it in the background. So I was trying to mute when I came up when you were talking. So for those of you listening, it's just city noise. Just being in the city, man. It's what it is. And the last question is what is your favorite? Food indulgence. Oh, my goodness gracious. I'm going to say pizza because even though I have a dairy allergy and I do get like I have really good vegan options. I'm not vegan. I love to. Well, OK, I've got two then. One, it, once in a while, I'll have some a piece of pizza with dairy on it, even though I know I'm not necessarily going to feel too well. It's like drinking too much. You know, you're going to feel a little crappy the next morning. The other indulgence I have is going to kind of a. Uh, a quasi restaurant where they have some vegan options and some conventional and I'll order a vegan burger and I ask them to put bacon on it in the server every single time, no matter where I do this, they'll step back and say, well, uh, bacon. well, we, I think we have a coconut bacon. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want the pig on there. 
and they're so confused. But for me, it's so enjoyable. I'm like, ah, it's the dichotomy burger. So <laughs> that, that's, that's my own little fun thing that I like to do too. Nice. I like it. I, you know, I, I would, because I'm a cook and I enjoy torturing people about food, I would do that only to watch the look on her face. Oh, it's amazing. Invariably, every time they walk away, just either just totally weirded out, irritated, confused, whatever it may be. But some of my favorite burgers I've ever had have been vegan veggie burger on a gluten-free bun with bacon. Nice. I approve. I like that. That sounds, one, it sounds good because I've, I've actually done that before. Well, that's cool. But it also, the entertainment value alone is worth the price of admission. And plus, you get to give a good tip. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, we have, you know, I've we could probably talk another two hours, but we probably can't because you've got things to do, I expect. I got to eat at this point, all this talking about food. Yeah. Well, all right then. So anyway, I, Michael, I thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Dan, this is really, I've really had a lot of fun and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to just blab. So thank you so much. <laughs> Well, you're what I mean, blab on someone else's show. You've got plenty of you've got your own time. I've watched your videos. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. So, well, been my pleasure. All right. So, uh, I'm going to hit the stop record button now. And um, so, this I publish once a week on Monday. And I didn't hit the stop recording button yet because I think sometimes it silences me and then the guest gets like, what happened? Um, so, um, so it publishes 7 o'clock my time, our time on Mondays, and I'll send you a link shortly after that, and you can do with it whatever you want to, post it up where, wherever you feel necessary. Cool. Um, I will post the heck out of it on Podcasting for Freedom and Tom Woods and oh, nice. just a whole bunch of other stuff. But All right, my friend. Have a great day, and thank you. Thanks again. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. All of the links to Michael's efforts the Tenth Amendment Center, as well as his social media and YouTube channels, will be on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 27. I'll also add links to the two books mentioned, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Food Rights, as well as The Omnivore's Dilemma. If our talk of milk and cheese has your mind wandering about an excellent blue or a Gouda, or a Gruyere, or some other cheese, well, head over to my affiliate, De Bruno Brothers, to help scratch that itch. De Bruno Brothers has been a Philly icon since 1939, selling cheeses and olive oils and desserts and bread, and now they sell online and ship. Click over with my link, culinarylibertarian.com cheese, and learn about their subscription choices, cured meats and specialty foods such as salts, chocolates, vinegars, and candied cashews. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash cheese for a bit of Philly's iconic specialty grocery store delivered to your front door. CulinaryLibertarian.com slash cheese. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. I, I really appreciate this. I really do. You've got a level of information that I just, I, I can't even twin because of your years involved. So 
Man, this was so fun. I never get asked to do this topic. So when you asked, I'm like, oh man, this is so cool. Because it's like my in my personal life, eating is such a huge deal. <laughs> like, so yeah, it's really important to me personally, and it's been really fun. Thanks a lot, Dan. My pleasure. Well, you know, it, it was it was the episode Tom did about you and and uh oh yeah Murphy. Yeah, man. And that was, I mean, that was so cool. He emailed me earlier this that morning. He's like, yeah, you're going to really have to listen to this episode. And I was a few episodes behind. I'm like, ah, I'm going to listen to the socialism one. He's like, you should really listen to the one that I'm releasing later today. Yeah, it was good. So, and he mentioned that you do all these things, including food sovereignty. And it was almost as if he was talking to me. So like, he probably was. I, you know, I, I hear him say food now and again. I, I really sort of think that that how how arrogant is that? That Tom Woods is talking to me through his podcast. Quick bonus episode conversation, just very briefly. Tom, uh, over the summer last summer, I was hanging out with him at an event, and he's like, "This was one of the coolest experiences of my life." Since you mentioned this other guy's name, he said, "Hey, I'm going to lunch with Walter Block. You want to come with?" <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. That had to be probably, and maybe I'm just really pumped about it. That may have been the coolest lunch experience I've ever had. Walter was such an incredibly nice guy. I mean, I love Tom. I've known him for so many years. Uh, but yeah, to be there with with Walter was just awesome. That that sounds yeah. That's there's there's a level of coolness to that, and so. <laughs> You know, I, I've come to realize that not everybody has a geekish appreciation of history <laughs> the way that I do. And, my, and so my specific example about this is that um, I, I get really amped up over the history of place. So when I went and visited Boston hmm. and I walked the Freedom Trail, now I... Oh, I've always wanted to do it. I haven't yet, though. It's very awesome. I know that they've paved the road a thousand times between now and 1776. I understand that. I know that that actual spot isn't where the Boston Massacre took place. I know I know this, but still, to, to stand in approximately the same place as Jefferson and Adams and Franklin, I just... And to sort of let that wash over you. That's cool. If if you're open to that, it is it, it is potent, man. <laughs> I mean It's like having lunch with Walter. Yeah. So Ben Yeah, it really is. I I follow Freedom Trail on Twitter. They actually do really cool tweets. Well, my sister lived in Boston, which is how that all came to be. And so we went Mine does too. Uh, we went to the cemetery with Ben Franklin's parents, but also Sam Adams. And it's like, yeah. The, so if you if you don't care about that stuff, it's just like old dead guys. Then you're not going to appreciate, right? Right. And I gotta feel that, but I get that. So when I meet, so meeting a person like Walter, I I have to think about. The connection to Murray oh. and to Mises, and then mind you, the entire lunch was Tom saying, "Oh yeah, you know, I once heard you tell this story about Murray." There was a lot of, "Oh Murray, we, you know, we would go do this," and he's talking about back in the '60s and hanging out with Murray and meetings. And I told Tom, 
I am like, uh, and Tom was like, ah, we keep asking Walter about Murray, right? And I'm like, someday when we're old, someone's going to be like, what was it like hanging out with Woods? Yeah, or Bolin. Nah, more Tom than anything. But really, I mean, I Tom is such a, like, he's such a great thinker and such an amazing worker that I feel it's the same type of level, but in the next generation. Not that I'm trying to equivoc- like put myself on the same plane as Block, but yeah, like... Just having that opportunity to spend time with such great thinkers is really, really cool. I don't get that real often, but yeah, I, I definitely appreciate it. Anyways, that was my cool lunch story. That's an awesome lunch story. I and so you, I appreciate the value of that kind of thing. And I was trying to think, and I, I still can't come up with. Oh, that's not true. Um, so in in the cooking world, certainly probably not as important in the grand scheme of things as libertarian thinkers. I don't know about that. But um, I have worked with some certified master chefs who have worked with in their training some of the, I mean, major heavy hitters. So, you know, Bocuse and Giardet and Verge and, and. Oh, wow. So it's like, dang. So having a connection to what I revere as the. The, the palace of culinary is this old French tradition. That's amazing. Um, so I know that other countries have done a lot for food, Italy particularly, but the French contribution is mostly putting it down on paper, codifying it, and setting a standard of excellence for the Michelin stars, right? For the Michelin stars. And, and really, the French's contribution really is two things. And this is a fight me thing sauce. And desserts. Sauce? More than the Chinese and Japanese? No, not more than the Chinese and Japanese, but more than everybody else Western. Oh, okay. Because it's been codified because right. they've taught. So this is this is an Espanol. This is a bechamel. This is a velouté. This is how you get excellence. I don't get to eat bechamel sauce, unfortunately. You don't get what? I don't get to eat bechamel sauce. <laughs> No, you probably don't. Um, it's it's the constant and the, the constant push to make whatever it is you made today one iota better tomorrow. And ninety nine percent of the people who taste it will never ever tell the difference. But you, as the cook, you know that you've tweaked it to a level that very, very few can achieve. And it, it gets, so that's where it gets to be total mind. Because now, instead of just cooking for your family and making stuff. That's art. Well, it is art, but it's also, it infects everything that you do. So now you're walking around the house, picking things up and you, it, it's a, <laughs> It takes years for this to go away. You get mad at yourself because you recognize an inefficiency in your path from the bedroom to the living room. <laughs> you should have gone the other way and picked up and dropped off something. That's awesome. <laughs> well, it it can it, it 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 yeah it can be, but it can also make insanity is a fun thing to talk about. It yeah it it can it can make just daily living absolute hell, and so. Um, I, I had a certified master chef who I was bonded with immediately. We were like brothers instantly. And, but still he was my mentor and, and 
even years after working with him, I could still hear Jack in my head. And I'm like, hey, Jack, get out. Yeah. Good that he's there, though, for the times that you want him there. It is. Yeah. So I'm. It's the trade off. He's always there, but when you need it, you know, you may be annoyed by him, but when you need him, he's still there. Oh, I could. I, he's still there in practice. I used to hear his voice. I can't hear his voice anymore. Well, that's. See, now your voice is probably in someone else's head. You know, it's funny because I was doing, I did my little muffin ebook and I was going to, and I'm still thinking about selling it. But I asked three people for a short um, written support, endorsement, that's the word, of, of my cooking skills. And, and don't put dates in there because I want it to be timeless. I don't want people to know it's 20 years ago. And so one kid who is in, uh, I think he's in L.A. or San Francisco, um, this young man came to me looking to just work in the kitchen at all. He was at Florida State University, a music uh, a master's degree music student could play a trumpet. I mean, you should play a trumpet very well. So he has the art that a musician has because he's been doing this for six years, but didn't know, didn't know how to cook food, but wanted to learn. So I put him in a salad station and started just trying to find a way to talk to him, not as a musician, because I don't play really. I've dabbled at it, but I can speak to him as the artist. Yeah. And so he started making salads and then making the vinaigrettes and then following the procedures of that and then learning how to tweak to get more flavor from basic things. We don't add to just there's a skill to that, but you have to learn how to do it. And then we worked into bread. And so his memory and I didn't know what I was going to get when I asked for this was his memory is listening to me giggle in girlish delight at the sound of the bread crackling as it's cooling out of the oven. And there's, if you do it right, it, it just makes this nice little crack, crack, crack. It sounds kind of like Rice Krispies. That's so cool. And if you have so cool. 10 loaves doing that, you have this little mini symphony of baked bread going crack, crack, crack. And I said, now, Corey, we're going to we're going to make sure we do this because we want to listen for that sound and what when the bread cracks like that, that's the bread telling you, I love you too. Oh, that's awesome! It's oh, thanking you awesome. for making it the right way by following all these steps, which are which can be difficult, but your reward is to be told by the bread, thank you for making me the right way. And he remembers that. And he, that's what he remembered, to hear Chef Dan giggle at delight at the sound of the bread cracking. That's his memory. I got to say, I used to make bread weekly, and I don't remember that sound, so I must have not been doing it right. Well, it's not sandwich bread. It's artisan bread. It's freeform. It's baguettes. It's balloons. It's- I was doing uh, like a, I don't know what you would call it, like a, some kind of a round Italian loaf. Well, that should do it. Uh, maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Maybe you didn't know what you were listening for. Maybe. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't. If I ever pick it up again, I know who I'm messaging. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> awesome, Dan. I should run. I, I really appreciate it again. 